0: Well, I'm not sure about you, but the worst criticism I've ever received has been sadly from myself. On today's show, what all of us can do to better manage our own inner critics. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 232. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to develop your leadership skills. And I'm glad to have you back or perhaps joining us for the first time for a conversation today that is going to hit home for so many of us. And if you've listened for any length of time to this show, you know that a big focus of my work in, in helping leaders is looking internally in how we can be more effective in our own personal leadership and the conversation that we're having with ourselves. And one conversation that we all have with ourselves is the conversation with our inner critic. And that's why I'm really glad to be able to welcome today's guest, who has done a lot of work. On helping leaders to start to manage their inner critic and to not be bound by the, the things that our inner critic is often telling us. And that is Tara Moore. Tara is an expert on women's leadership and well being. She helps women play bigger in sharing their voices and bringing forward their ideas in work and life. And Tara is the creator of the Plain Big Leadership Program and is the author of Plain Big. Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead, and it was named a Best Book of the Year by Apple's iBooks. She's attracted the attention of notable women such as Maria Shriver, Jillian Michaels, and Elizabeth Gilbert. Tara, I'm so glad to meet you. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's really a pleasure. I'm so happy to be here with you and your listeners today.
0: Well, me too. And I should mention here on the front end, you have done a lot of work with women leaders over the years. And yet, we are going to look at this conversation pretty broadly. There are unique challenges that women face, and I I, I know we want to get into some of those. And we're also going to look at this from a standpoint of how do all of us really manage our inner critic? Because this is something that's really a challenge for everybody, isn't it?
1: It is. It's completely universal, and I think that's that's actually one of the first things that can be very powerful to understand about the inner critic, because we all walk around alone hearing the inner critic in our head, and we often think that, oh, that's just how my crazy thinking sounds. We don't usually share the most ridiculous or outlandish things our inner critic says, so we don't ever get to discover how universal it is that everyone is grappling with a voice that says absurd and ridiculous and outlandish and very mean things to themselves sometimes.
0: So those voices in my head are normal is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> they are normal. And and sometimes we think we got to find, you know, what happened? Did it, was it because I had this really critical boss early on, or I'm just not a confident person? And I've found after now working with so many people around their leadership, their goals, and and how the inner critic can get in the way of them moving forward with, with those things, that it is universal and we don't have to have a particular cause or source for it in terms of our life experience, it's actually something we're hardwired for.
0: One of the things that struck me as I was reading through some of your work is that you mentioned when you started your coaching practice and and you had focused your work with women is you mentioned that you kept running into brilliant women who couldn't see their own brilliance. Tell me more about that.
1: Right. Well, I opened my coaching practice. I didn't know what I was going to focus on. I just knew at the time I was on my own journey of transition to a, a career that was more aligned with my passions and, and what I loved most doing. So I knew I, I wanted to move in a coaching direction. I was getting trained at the Coaches Training Institute and I was still working my other job full time. So I just kind of emailed my friends and family network and said, hey, I need you know clients to practice what I'm learning on. And and so people through my friends and family started showing up and they were mostly women, but some men too, with all different kinds of career challenges who wanted some help. And some wanted to change careers, some wanted to advance, some wanted to figure out you know, how can I get my organization to move me to do this kind of work that I think I'd like more than what I'm doing and so on. But again and again, I was Really kind of falling in love with my clients when you're in a, in a professional sense of so inspired by them, by their capability, by their desire to be of service and the kind of their the ethical way they approach their work, their talents, just really seeing the best in them and seeing how much they could do and also how capable they were of the things that they were hoping to do or dreaming of doing in their work. And yet again and again, I was seeing they really did not see themselves that way. Mm. And I was hearing a ton of, I'm not ready yet. I need five more years experience first, but I don't have a degree in that very specific thing. Maybe I should go take this three-year training in it first. I just, I've never been good at that kind of thing. That's a part of the thing I want to do. There's no way they would take me seriously if I pitched this role to the management. Lots of those kinds of thoughts that really were in conflict with the facts that were in front of both of us. And so figuring out how to remove that barrier for people became a huge focus of my work. And I I wanted to do that on behalf of my clients, and I felt an obligation to get them results. But I also developed a real personal passion for it because I was looking at the leaders that are often in power in the business world and in the political world and feeling like, wow, you know, the decisions they're making are are often not wise. They often do not have the level of integrity that I'm seeing in these clients. And yet they're the ones making the important decisions while these, incredibly capable and caring people are feeling like they're not ready yet to be at the table and that was like we gotta we gotta change this if our if our world is gonna improve or even just survive
0: oh, yeah I'm, I resonate so much with that I've seen the same thing and one of the reasons I was really interested in talking with you is in reading through your work, I noticed that you not only make a distinction between confidence and courage, But one of the other things that you really advocate for, especially for leaders, is to not necessarily focus on building more confidence, which is what we always hear. And I've done it too with clients of trying to help people to build their more more confidence. You've actually positioned your work in a very different way in order to help people get results. Tell me more about that.
1: The common advice is be more confident. And I think, you know, that's, It's easy advice to give for the advice giver. (laughs) It's pretty simple. (laughs) You know, it's straightforward. But it's not very easy to implement or incorporate for the person on the other side. I think we all would be more confident if we knew how to do that. But we're not really in control of whether and when our inner critics speak up and whether and when we feel self-doubt. The problem with confidence is that just like self-doubt, confidence is about holding a concept of yourself and your abilities. And whenever we're talking about having a concept or a judgment about ourselves and our abilities, we're, we're in the realm of looking at ourselves from the outside, of assessing ourselves, and that's really kind of the realm of the ego. And, and things just don't go well from there. The ego is not reliable. It's not kind to us. It's not accurate. And if we're focusing on confidence, then we're thinking like, I should wait till I'm confident to do things. No, 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 no. My experience is that whenever we are doing anything in our lives that causes us to possibly come into contact with criticism, possible failure, in Brene Brown's words, emotional exposure of some kind, that the safety instinct in us does not want us to do that, even if it's something that could bring us a lot of fulfillment. So it could be asking to be put on a project that you're super excited about or asking to start a new division at your company or applying for a job that feels like a real stretch or speaking up in a meeting to point out what you feel is the elephant in the room that everyone's scared to talk about. Any of those kind of really beautiful, playing bigger moves, the safety instinct says, no, thank you. The safety instinct is like, let's just be in the status quo, do what's familiar. But of course, the part of you that wants fulfillment and self-expression and all of that wants to do something different. But the safety instinct knows that if it just said to you, hi, I'm your safety instinct, please never speak up, please never go for your dreams, please never get off your couch, please never stop eating those like numbing out snacks, you know, you would say, (laughs) no, there's some other things I want to do during my, my one precious life, as Mary Oliver put it. So the safety instinct has to get more strategic than that and use an argument that's going to be much more persuasive to you. And so instead of saying, I am the safety instinct, please don't ever risk any emotional ouch moments in your life, it says you're not qualified for that. Better get a PhD in it first. You've never had good negotiating skills, so don't even ask. It'll use an inner critic kind of line, because that's more painful and intimidating and paralyzing to that.
0: Yeah, and this, I, I, well, I think almost all of us can relate to this. I've, we this fear of shame and embarrassment that might happen if we don't execute it quite right, or if, or, or or there's uncertainty. Um, I, one of the things you've you've pointed out in your work is this does affect women more dramatically, and I'm I think we should say something about that of of maybe why and and what is it about that that affects women differently.
1: Right. Well, there's a few pieces that are, you know, th- around that. So one is that the research shows us that women, A, tend to get more criticism than men in professional environments, and B, that it is more personal. There's a really great study done last year by a linguist named Kieran Snyder. She's also a technology entrepreneur, and um, so she has brought both this linguistic background and her experience in the corporate world to design a study where they did a semantic analysis of qualitative, so written performance reviews for men and women in tech companies. And they found that not only across the board, across the companies, did women get more negative feedback, but here was the most stunning part, that 73% of the negative comments that women got included a criticism of their personality. Mm. 2% of the criticism that men got included a, a, a reference to their personality. So when you think about for women over time, what that what that means for our experience is that criticism is more personal, it's more wounding, it's more like, oh, that's really about me, not just about my work, there's something wrong with me. So that can add to our like wanting to stay away from things that are going to bring criticism. And then, of course, in our internet time, a lot of this criticism gets really violent and sexualized and vulgar, especially against women. So that's one dimension. Another is that for women, because we are, we've been, you know, more socialized to be a good girl, to be relationally oriented, to not, you know, cause controversy or, or upset other people, that makes criticism feel different to us and almost is in conflict with being a nice person or a nice woman in a way that's different than than how boys are socialized, that, you know, there's gonna be fights, there's gonna be challenges and battles in your life, and there's gonna be a bad guy and you're gonna get to be the good guy. That's a much more central narrative, right, for men. So there's all those pieces. And then around the inner critic, one very interesting piece is that the research really doesn't conclusively show that women have more self-doubt than men different studies kind of land in different places on the question of do women have more self-doubt than men? Some say yes, a lot say no. But what their research does suggest is that women will feel more self-doubt about things that are associated with masculinity in our culture. And that is quantitative work, financial tasks, leadership, negotiation, competitive situations, those kinds of things. And then interestingly, some research suggests that men feel more self-doubt around things that are associated with femininity in our culture, like communication and relational skills. There's an interesting study on negotiation where they tell women and men who are about to go into a mock negotiation, good negotiators are are really good communicators and they read nonverbal cues well, um, and they're great listeners. And then the pilot group gets told something much more neutral, and the the group of men that was told a good negotiator has great communication skills they suddenly perform much worse in the negotiation because oh, wow. they're they're nervous and self conscious. So, how you know what the stereotypes of the culture are affect where we feel we're competent and not.
0: Yeah, and in, in some ways, I mean, I feel so ill equipped to understand that as a man because you know I've. I haven't had that experience, and yet I see th- what you've just described all the time with the women I work with, Tara. That it that that reality is there, that those struggles are there, and like it's worth us figuring out how to do that better, whether woman or man, to figure out how we can manage that inner critic. Because um, it, real good work, and I I think you've made the point too that substantive work is gonna bring both praise and criticism, it's inevitable. So figuring that out is worth it for us in our careers, but also how we add value to the world.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So to kind of finish that thought on, it's not about confidence, I really believe we're not trying to get to some confident place in our careers, nor are we trying to get those that we manage or our team members to a confident place. What What's much more realistic and effective is not to try and develop unfailing confidence, but to develop a different kind of relationship to our self-doubt, where we recognize what our own inner critics sound like. We know some of the patterns. We know the common lines. We're paying attention, looking for the new lines that it's saying. And then we know that our job is to name it for what it is. Remember, it's coming from the safety instinct. You know, you can always ask when you're hearing your inner critic, what might my safety instinct be worried about here? And you'll usually suddenly understand (laughs) why some part of you is really trying to talk you out of doing this thing. To develop all those skills so that moment to moment you're managing the inner critic differently, but expecting it to be there. I think it, it, it does stay with us if we're playing big in our careers because we're always shaking things up for that safety instinct and it's trying to find the next, Um, inner critic narrative that will send us back into the comfort zone.
0: So rather than us setting a goal or maybe even us working with someone else, trying to set them a goal goal of being more confident, it's much more a looking inward and how do I understand, appreciate, dare I say, maybe even develop a relationship with our inner critic so that inevitably when those conversations are happening, we understand how we can frame that better in a way that maybe can serve us versus holding us back
1: yes and you know the thing this is interesting too for people who are managing a team and seeing that if your direct reports are struggling with you see them struggling with self-doubt typically what we might think is well in order to move into leadership they need to be more confident that's a key part of being a leader so now i'm waiting to see confidence in them yeah and you might even be saying in your review with them i got to see more confidence and instead you could say, you know, it seems like you're struggling with this thing that I think of in myself as the inner critic. And there's a skill that we can work on you developing here, which is to recognize that when it's showing up and have some tools so that it's not running the show. And then, here, and then to share some of those tools so it's rather than waiting for the quality of confidence to promote someone, you just want to see that they're in the process of developing that skill so that their self-doubt is going to be conscious for them and managed, not in charge, not driving them.
0: And my sense is, is that's not a conversation that most people know how to have with themselves, much less have with the people that they lead and that they coach and, and one of the things that was really profound that I saw in your writing was the direction of never argue with a person's inner critic. I have done that as recently as probably yesterday <laughs> before I read that. <laughs> and I was thinking about that and I was like, oh, that's really interesting how you frame that. Tell tell us more about that, of why why is that problematic for from a leadership yeah. standpoint.
1: Well, I first wanna credit CTI here, Coaches Training Institute, where I did my coaching training because in their language, they would talk about the saboteur voices we'd have. And they'd always say, never coach your client's saboteur voice. Coach the client. Meaning if you if the client is showing up and you're hearing their inner self-sabotaging voice, you don't want to coach that voice. You don't want to actually get into the conversation with that voice. You need to somehow get get to a different place where you can talk to the client about that voice. So that was really my foundation in that. And then a, a branch of that is to really never be arguing with someone's inner critic. And I would say that includes your spouse's inner critic, your teen's inner critic. This is, a I think, a really common pitfall for parents who feel like their job is to build up a, an insecure teen by arguing with the teen's inner critic, direct reports, you know, clients if you're coaching or consulting and so on. I'll, I'll give an example, you know, of, I can think back to a time when I really started to see this in my coaching practice with someone who was thinking of leaving their job to start their own business. And at first, you know, her big concern was like, I just don't know if there's a market for this. We kind of came up with a plan for her to do some market testing, and and she got a lot of good data on what the market was for. And then she came back, and it was like, yeah, but I don't, I don't think I have the fundraising skills. Okay, so I'm thinking, you know, my job as a coach is to help her unpack each of these roadblocks and create an action plan around them, and hold her accountable and sure, sure. cheer her on, right? So then we work on that, and then she get well. Now the problem, and it became clear that actually none of these things. Was the real obstacle? We were just going through one new costume after the next that fear was wearing. Mm. And then it, you know it was well, I don't have this training, and it's irresponsible to my family, and we could come up with a good plan around each of them, but the next one was there. And I started to call this the objection Rolodex. It's like <laughs> you know the inner <laughs> critic's just going through the cards, and meanwhile. Yeah you're wasting your time and your client's wasting their time. So the alternative is, so let's say, you know, you're you're managing someone and they're saying, but I'm just not ready for that job yet. And you think that they are, right? So instead of trying to convince them, because they're probably, it can work occasionally that, you know, someone says the right thing to us at the right moment and we suddenly see ourselves in the new way, but that's like 1% of the time. It's not very good odds because if fear is what's underlying that for for the client, you know, you might even convince them on that front, but then they'll just come up with something else that's a problem. So instead you want to kind of go to the meta level and say, okay, if it sounds like there's some self doubt here, there's some fear, here are some tools to deal with those things. What would it be like to do this even not feeling ready? How can we test if these self doubts are true? But but also just those foundational tools on the inner critic like okay, if this voice in your head that's saying these things was a character and you could personify it as a, a character other than yourself, let's look at what's this character like and what are the other things they say and what are they worried about and start to hear that voice as coming from the character. That can be a really powerful way for that individual to separate it as one voice in them and start to hear the other voice, which might say things like, Oh, there's something kind of that piques my curiosity about that new job, or wow, I would love to be able to be making more money in that role and supporting my family better, or whatever you know, whatever the other parts of them may have to say.
0: Yeah, and I, I sense that that's contrary to a lot of conventional wisdom on this. Of normally, you know, it's it's let's be more confident. Let's let's not engage someone in even recognizing self doubts because we don't want to call attention to it. And yet, it's it sounds like. There's a lot to be gained by okay, let's let's call it what it is rather than try and pretend that's not there because we all have it. Let's identify it, let's name it and manage it and figure out how that shows up for us because I suspect it does show up a little different for all of us and then and then it's it's a data point in our decision making versus the thing that's all consuming that feels like it's taking over when we try to advance something in our lives
1: right, right. And it's noticing it and knowing it for what it is, not to dwell on it or try and resolve it, but then so that you can move forward with it. It might still be whispering in your ear. You know, I, I often share a, a really powerful for lear- learning for me. An example of this was when the hardcover edition of my book was coming out about a year and a half ago. It was about six weeks away from publication. And I got this email in my inbox from my editor at Penguin and it said, great news, we've piqued the interest of the Sunday op-ed editors at the New York Times and they'd like you to write an essay for their consideration based on chapter 6 of the book. And I looked at that email and my heart immediately started pounding and my first thought was, oh no, this is so annoying. I have so much to do with this book launch and now I'm going to have to spend time writing an essay that we know is never going to be accepted, never going to be published because people who write for the New York Times op-ed page sound like grown ups when they write. <laughs> and Tara, you know, you've never sounded like that. <laughs> I was like, they have that flowy, articulate thing, like graceful and literary and you know, that is not you. And it, for five days, I was in that place of like, oh, I have to write this thing so that I don't make it look obvious to my publisher, like I'm not even trying, but we know it's going to go nowhere and it's just going to be so painful when the email comes back that's like, oh, nice try, honey, but sorry, we can't, we can't put this in the paper. And on the fifth day, I was like, wait, I vaguely remember something about an inner critic. Like it took me 5 days to remember the concept of the inner critic, even yeah. though that's largely <laughs> what the essay would have been about. <laughs> right. And like then I was like, right, okay, and the inner critic, and then I asked myself that question, well, why wouldn't my safety instincts like this? Oh, because okay, so Because A, I have to submit an essay which someone might say, nice try, and that would be an ouch moment. And even if they publish it, and then it runs, like one thing we know for sure is that if I write an op-ed on women's issues in the New York Times, some people are not going to like what I have to say. For sure. And there's the possibility that people are going to think it's ridiculous and I'm making a fool of myself and who the hell is she and all those things. So of course, my safety instinct is like, why in the world would we do this? Yeah. And then I was like, but it seems really true. It also seemed really true to me that there was no way this essay could get accepted. And so I wrote the whole essay going like, yeah, I know my job is to say that maybe that's my inner critic and I got to do this thing anyway, because my commitment is to like walk through the doors that open that are aligned with where I want to go and what I want to say. And this was a chance to say some things I wanted to say. So I wrote the whole essay with my inner critic there. I was not confident. And if I had waited on confidence, I never would have written it. Hmm. That's the distinction that I'm talking about.
0: And so what happened with the essay?
1: It was accepted. It actually then became the most emailed article of the week in the times That's
0: awesome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> beating beating the new the story on the new iphone and putin it was that was who i was competing with for a few days there but then we got to number one and it was like oh my gosh my my inner critic was so wildly off base and it felt so incredibly true and i you know i just wish right now that i could take everyone who's listening you know by the shoulders and look in their eyes and say there is something your inner critic is saying to you That is equally delusional.
0: I so appreciate you sharing that because it's not a story about I struggled for five days and then I found the confidence. It's I struggled for five days and then I was still struggling and I did it in spite of the struggle. I I was able to frame it in the perspective that it should have been framed in and move forward in spite of that. Yes. And that's key, because I I think a lot of us do do that, is we wait for the right training, the right inspiration, the right confidence level. And more often than not, it just doesn't show up at the timing we'd like to have it.
1: That's right. That's right. And it is uncomfortable to do things when we're feeling that level of fear and self-doubt about them. You know, the adrenaline is flowing, and our blood pressure is probably up a little bit. But the payoff is so great. It's worth it.
0: Yeah. Oh, it totally is. It totally is. And you know, we've we've looked at this a little bit from the standpoint of leadership and how to help people to frame that a little better that we're leading. And and one of the things I'm curious about, Tara, is when you're working with clients, is what's what's one action that you find that if people take that helps them just to do this better for themselves of being able to acknowledge the inner critic, of being able to recognize it for what it is, and to have that relationship. What do you find as an action that works? A lot of the time for people in being able to do that?
1: There's actually so many, but a really great one to do is first to just write down a lot of your inner critic's most commonly voiced lines, just the the process of shining the spotlight on it and putting it in writing so that you're starting to Know what they are so that when you hear them, the next time it's, oh, ding, ding, ding. I already labeled that as not the voice of truth, but the inner critic. So that's, that's a really big one. Having a character that you feel like personifies your inner critic voice, and then when you hear your inner critic talking, kind of picturing it as coming from that character can be really great asking you know what what would freak the safety instinct out here and kind of looking at it with compassion of oh there's just a part of me that's really scared and that part doesn't need to be in charge those are all great places to start
0: and that moves us more from not worrying so much about confidence but of having the courage to say in spite of the confidence i don't feel or the experience maybe i don't feel like i have That I'm able to think about this, you know, in a more balanced way, and then and then make a decision: is this the right move for my career? Is this something that I really do want to move forward on?
1: Yeah, and you're also kind of pointing to an important discernment process that we haven't talked about yet, which is that because people will often ask me, well, what's the difference between the inner critic and good critical thinking or being realistic? Right? Because sometimes the answer is I'm not qualified or no, customers don't want that new product that I just created. And so I point people to look at the tone of the voice in your head to distinguish, are you hearing the inner critic? or Are you hearing realistic thinking? The inner critic will usually be repetitive. It will often sound anxious. It tends to state things in very definite terms. It doesn't ask questions. It doesn't leave a lot of room for gray and nuance. And the inner critic will sort of loop around and around on the problem or the fear or the deficit that it perceives you as having. That's inner critic. True realistic thinking sounds much more emotionally neutral. And there's a lot of curious questions. Like it it won't sound like, what if people hate that? It'll sound like, I really don't know if that's something that's going to resonate with people. Okay, what are some preliminary ways I can find out? Oh, I could do this little test or I could check in with it. So it'll quickly go from emotionally neutral questions to starting to brainstorm some solutions. It'll actually move you forward in a linear way. So it might have some of the same concerns as the inner critic, but it talks to you about them in a a productive and much more calm way.
0: Tara, this is really fabulous. Um, I appreciate you making that distinction, but also just helping us to reframe how we think about this voice that we've all got in our heads. And I I know this is going to be really valuable perspective for so many people in our audience, and particularly many of the women that we work with that I know have struggled with this. This will be really helpful. Um, tell people more about it. You do a lot of writing online. And of course, I want to make sure we mention the book here again. But for folks who want to learn more about your work and, and get more access to your writing, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah. Well, I'd love to connect with people. and um, You can come on over to, to taramohr, T-A-R-A-M-O-H-R dot com, and as you mentioned, I love to write. So there's lots of free resources there. You can get the free 10 Rules for Brilliant Women workbook, which is a really fun download to start working through. And then any all the information about my upcoming courses and all that goes out to the readers of that list. And then the Playing Big paperback is just out, which I'm super excited about because it's Easier to carry around than the hardback was, and um, has a new cover that's just beautiful. And so you can get that at any any book seller that you like to shop at.
0: Atara, I really appreciate your time, your wisdom, and also your stories and just um, and your authenticity and how much you've also struggled with this. Um, you know to underscore the point of we we all have this voice, and so. It's not a matter of if it's there, it's how we have a conversation and relationship with it. And I'm just, I'm really excited to see what comes out of this conversation for many people in our audience.
1: Oh, likewise. Thank you so much for having me and for such a thoughtful conversation and and for all the good work that you're doing with this show.
0: Tara Moore is the author of Plain Big, Find Your Voice, Your Mission, Your Message. Thanks, Tara.
1: Thank you. Thanks, everybody.
0: Tara, thank you so much for your wisdom and perspective here and not only for how it can be helpful to us, but also how to influence others on this journey too of managing inner critics. And if you found something that's helpful today and are planning to apply it, we'd love to know about it Tar and I would love to hear what you're doing with it. go up to coachingforleaders.com232 or when you get the weekly leadership guide this week uh, follow the link and we'd uh, love to have you join the conversation as well and speaking of joining the conversation, the next Q a show is upcoming here again in a few weeks episode 235, and still looking for a few questions for that episode. So if you've been wondering about something, or maybe today's conversation has generated a few ideas for you or a few thoughts, I hope you'll go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. We do uh, the Q&A shows every first Monday of the month, and it's a great way for us to have some dialogue with you and really find out what you're thinking about and, and also inform future shows. I often uh, take the questions from those shows and help them uh, use them to guide my thinking as well and what guests come on to the show in the future. So, uh, so thanks in advance if you decide to submit a question. And, hey, if you're picking up the show for the first time, welcome. I'm so glad you've joined in. This show's been going almost five years now. It's a weekly show that focuses on the consistency And the importance of regular improvement in our leadership skills. And if that is something that is in your thinking right now of wanting to get better at that, not only now, but consistently for the future, I hope you'll subscribe to the show either on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever or whatever app you picked up the show on. And while you're online, take a moment to join the weekly leadership guide. It comes to your inbox every Wednesday and includes my writing thoughts, recommendations, articles on the resources that I think will support your development between the shows. Also, once in a while, an article for me as it was last week on how to facilitate more effectively, and you'll also get the overview and link to every Episodes show notes for that week. So if you listen on the go like I do, it'll give you a good way to follow up later on the links and resources that we mention in every show. And as a bonus, when you join the weekly leadership guide, you will get immediate access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others with brief summaries from me on the value of each of those books. It's an 11 page guide and also comes with a nine minute video of those book recommendations, and you can get access to all of that at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. It is not too late to start your 2016 reading plan. I'm, I'm feeling pretty excited because I've already made it through two, almost three books this year as I'm recording this, and you can do the same by getting started with one of these books. I know it will help you to improve your leadership skills if you read just one this year. Speaking of books, the book Deep Work is going to be featured on next week's show. Cal Newport is my guest. You don't want to miss that conversation. It'll get you thinking about how you approach your work much differently. Have a great week and I'll see you next Monday.